So the two weeks ago where we were was uh, we were looking at um, David and uh, Absalom. David was on his way out of town. And as you'll remember, um, as Absalom moves towards Jerusalem from Hebron, which is in the south, he moves up into Jerusalem and David then picks up, realizes he's coming and picks up and flees out east. And this is of, of great concern, particularly in the biblical text. And the, re, and the main reason why, as we've been going through this study, we've seen that east of, the, of Jerusalem, or really east of the promised land in any scenario, is bad. Um, we're gonna, we saw that Adam and Eve are removed east of Eden. Uh, as a precursor to, to the Jews' exile from to Babylon, which is also east of Jerusalem, the sort of Eden-like state uh, where the kingdom of God is being established. And they pick up and, and move out east. Obviously, they're picked up by the Babylonians. And in between there, there's David, who is God's king. We've seen that even on Sunday morning, I hope, as you've been uh, maybe watching with us or attending in person, um, that Psalms is sort of laying that out and is establishing this kingdom of God that God has established through his king, who is originally David, but ultimately Jesus. Um, he, he has, he's establishing his kingdom. And so when that king is picked up and is moved out east of Jerusalem, that's not a good thing. That is, uh, uh just a, a, a constant reminder of the kingdom of God being uprooted because of really man's own sin. And, uh, and David has, remember he has, uh, sought, sought another man's wife. He has taken her as his own. He has uh, a baby with her and he kills her husband because he wants to cover his tracks. And so this is a grievous sin. This is a terrible sin. And, uh, and for this sin, he is punished. And he's told specifically, this is going to be the case that the sword's not going to depart from his house. And, and honestly, this is sort of the, the, I mean, really, it's sort of the end of this, uh, before it even really begins, the end of this uh, kind of kingdom that's going to be established through just the, the you know, regular man, I should say. Um, and so David is, is, uh, is packing up, he's moving out east, and this is, this is really bad, he's moving away from the, the presence of God here. And so David's flight from Jerusalem, we saw it was a... Um, a kind of a, a, a reversal of sorts of um, of the way he got into the kingdom. Remember, as he went in, there was the issue with Saul, and then there was procuring people from Saul's house, and then he creates a family and, and all of this. Well, on his way out, it sort of goes in reverse. He, he, um, he you know, he, he, loses the, or he, he loses, he, he gets separated. He sends some of his own family members to stay in the land while he leaves. Um, then he starts to meet people from Saul's that were originally from Saul's kingdom and that came into his that are, uh, either staying in the, in the land, uh, or coming with him, but they're being uprooted as it were. And then we see ultimately he's cursed as he gets outside of the city, he's cursed by a Benjaminite, uh, in the wilderness, um, 
just like he was at the beginning when he was fighting Saul. And so it's just sort of uh, just walking back through the story of, of David's, um, thematically anyway, of David's kingdom being uh, tor- torn asunder and, and sort of unraveling. And you'll remember, which this is very important for what we're going to talk about tonight. David just kind of mutters this prayer under his breath as he's, as he's leaving. Um, we have this character named Ahithophel who was David's advisor and he was incredibly wise and a really good advisor, which is what you want in an advisor, a, a, a wise person. And he, his counsel, as we're going we're gonna to read in the text, his counsel was seen as the very counsel of God. What he said was considered from the mouth of the Lord himself. And meaning that when he said something was going to happen, you know, it was going to happen. And so um, Ahithophel uh, changes sides. And David knows when Ahithophel is with Absalom, that's bad news for David. And so David mutters this prayer under his breath that the Lord would turn the counsel of Ahithophel on its head and that he would somehow just tear asunder the counsel of Ahithophel. And at that moment, he gets approached uh, by an individual that we're going to see tonight that actually is going to play a huge role in helping um, David uh, conquer Absalom. And we're not going to see Absalom's fall completely tonight. We're going to see that next week. But um, Hushai is is an answer to David's prayer near immediately, even before David really knows about it. So David tells Hushai to stay and stay in the land and help me and just report to me through the priests in the land there uh, anything that you see and anything that you hear in the house of Absalom and uh, play that play that role really well and see if you can deceive Absalom essentially. And so this is David's sort of plot at some counterintelligence. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about tonight. Is And we're going to look at in this story play out is how Hushai works inside the house of Absalom to help tear down Absalom's kingdom before it even begins, tear it down from within. So David had instructed Hushai, uh, to deceive Absalom in order to subvert the uh, advice of Ahithophel. Ahithophel, remember, is staying on as Absalom's counselor. He's very wise, and David knows uh, he's got to pull out all the stops if he's going to, if he's going to, you know, if the Lord is going to do this. And remember too that we talked about last week. David is resigned to whatever the will of God is in this situation for it to happen. If that means for Absalom to have the kingdom because of his sin and to kill David, then David says, the Lord knows where to find me, essentially. Um, and so David shows kind of a remarkable restraint, really, but he's um, resigned to the will of the Lord. But he, he says as a prayer, you know, Lord, turn the counsel of Ahithophel. And right then, Hushai shows up and he tells Hushai, you need to stay behind so that you can deceive uh, Absalom and subvert the advice of Ahithophel. And Absalom comes into the city and he's surprised. We're going to read in just a minute. He's surprised to find Hushai in the city since he was David's friend. He expected Hushai to go travel with David. And 
Hushai, you're going to see, plays this role really well. He plays the role as if he he were, excuse me, a loyal subject to Absalom. And if he's gonna, and he's gonna, you know, obey Absalom's every every wish. And so we're gonna see that in um, in Second Samuel sixteen fifteen to twenty three. If you look back, just the, the first verse that I uh, I I have there, which is Second Samuel fifteen thirty four. This is David telling Hushai what to do, and he says, "But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past." So now I'll be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the council of Ahithophel. So that's David giving giving him his orders. And so he does this. We're going to see, we see this in the next passage. 2 Samuel 16, 16, 15 to 23. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel came to Jerusalem. David's gone. They march into Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend came to Absalom. Hushai said to Absalom, long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, is this your loyalty to your friend? Meaning David, why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, no, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be and with him I will remain. And again, whom shall I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your counsel, what shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep, his, to keep the house. And all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in the, in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. All right. Now um, you'll notice that Ahithophel does some really clever things in this uh, statement that he makes to uh, to Absalom. And this is one of those moments of what in literature you would call dramatic irony, where you, the audience, know some information that some of the characters in the story do not know. And so you know Hushai is playing a role. Uh, I have the same one there, don't I? Uh, is playing a role. And we know that. The readers know that that he's playing a role, and therefore, we have to read everything that he says to Absalom with this sort of double sense to it. It's sort of got a, a twist to it, and you'll, you'll notice how, uh, maybe how cunning uh, Hushai really is, and how just clever he really is, because some of the things that he says can sort of be taken uh, another way. You, you know people probably like this, that they don't want to give you a straight answer and they can kind of give you this sort of uh, just sort of half, half, you know, way answer or whatever you want to call it. Uh, just sort of that kind of appeases you. But at the same time, when you think about it, you're like, wait, wait a minute. Did he answer my question? I'm not sure if he answered his question. Politicians are really good at that. Um, you know? And so Hushai, when we re when we think through it, you can see this sort of 
double sense where uh, he presents this sort of long live the king proclamation to Absalom as if Absalom is supposed to take it as Absalom is the king. But does Hushai mean Absalom? Long live Absalom? No, he doesn't mean long live Absalom. He's working for David and he thinks David is the king. So by not using the proper name of the king, he has, uh, he has appeased Absalom, but yet really in his heart of hearts, it's obvious, he means to indicate David, long live David, and probably would rather Absalom perish. Uh, so it's got that sort of double sense to it. And then Absalom, we see, is really suspicious about Hushai. In fact, he turns to Ahithophel and asks what Ahithophel would do in this, in this case. And Ahithophel seems to ignore Hushai altogether and doesn't really care. But he's very suspicious about Hushai. But Hushai claims that he would follow whomever Yahweh, the people, and the men of Israel had chosen. That's what he says in verse 18. Um, he says, no, for whom the Lord, this people, and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. Again, he seems to mean here that he's going to follow David, since obviously he sees Yahweh as having chosen David, not Absalom, to be king. So again, by avoiding the names of the person, he sort of, uh, I guess you would, the word is obfuscates his meaning here to Absalom, but it appeases Absalom. He's sort of playing this little uh, trickery. And then even in verse 19, even when he seems to say the son of David, why wouldn't I serve the son of David? It still has this little bit of an underside to it. On the surface, he seems to promise that he's going to serve the son of David as loyally as he served his father. But we know how he served David and we, the reader know how he's currently serving David. And that is with utter faithfulness. So I will serve you in the same way, or I will serve, I will continue to serve David essentially with utter faithfulness to David as King. And so he's going to continue to do that and serve David with absolute utter faithfulness and loyalty uh, to David. And so he's got, he's sort of, he's playing this very interesting and very, uh, very uh, astute sort of savvy game there with Absalom as he uh, works his way into Absalom's good graces and yet doesn't uh, get the guillotine uh, as it were, you know, and, and kind of, you know, still is able to stay in his house. And this is pivotal for David's move back into the land and the downfall of Absalom is that Hushai remains very close to Absalom because as we're going to see, he's not only going to try to undermine Ahithophel's counsel, but he's also going to be able to report to David what the inner workings of the house actually are to give David that sort of added advantage. Really an added advantage that David had once before, if you'll remember all the way back to David's, the very beginning of David's being outcast from Saul's kingdom and into the wilderness, who does he have working for him that knows the inner workings of the kingdom? He has Jonathan, right? So David, this is an old trick from David. 
And uh, the the young buck, Absalom, is moving in, but the old man, David, has still got that, uh, what they call old man strength, right? <laughs> he's, got, he's got a little bit of... Uh, get a got a little bit of wisdom still left in him, and he's get he's he's working this from the outside, and so in the early stages of the of the rebellion, it seems as though many in Israel are still on the fence, and they're waiting to see if perhaps Absalom and David will come to an agreement. You you'll um you, you know you this has happened a number of times. I know you can probably relate to the experience. Uh, even if I couldn't think of necessarily a specific example, but probably a lot of our international relations with, as it, as it comes up from president to president, you'll hear rumors from time to time on the news. They'll come across like most recently, I, the one that I think of is um, North Korea and our relationship with North Korea uh, going back probably a couple of years. There was a lot of rumor and a lot of, uh, uh, fear probably that we were going to go to war with North Korea and that, you know, there was all these reports coming across that like that, that uh, Kim Jong-un was testing missiles and, you know, there would be like this missile test. And then uh, our president would tweet something and we'd go, Oh no, that's not good. And then, you know, and then we'd hear the North Korea would release, you know, some sort of thing. And, and, and all of a sudden we were, talking about the very real possibility that that we were going to go to war with North Korea. And what you'll know is like over the course of, you know, the last 20 years or so, it, it it's so rare that that actually ends up happening, that something actually becomes of that. Most of the time we end up thinking to ourselves, at some point, cooler heads are going to prevail in this situation and we're not going to end up in a, in a nuclear holocaust. Well, the people in Israel are watching this, this kingdom be torn asunder. David is, has dri- is driven out east, and Absalom, his son, has come up and taken over the kingdom. And they are thinking, I guarantee you, the same thing that we're thinking, and it's obvious from the text at least that that's what's going on, and that Absalom still has to prove himself to the house of Israel. There's this feeling that, well, at some point they're going to work it out. At some point, we're going to have a handshake agreement and everything's going to settle down uh, at, at, at some point, which inspires the counsel of Ahithophel to say, no, take those 10 women that David left behind and go into them, essentially, make yourself a stench and prove to the people in Israel that you've got to make a choice. And so when Absalom seized David's concubines, it now becomes clear to the people that there is no possibility of reconciliation, that, uh, that the, the words of the text are that Absalom made himself a stench uh, to his father. And that's the counsel of Ahithophel is go to go into in verse 21 go into your father's concubines whom he has left to keep the house and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened now what is the purpose in Ahithophel's mind of doing that well it seems pretty clear that it's putting the ball back in the court of the nation make a choice choose 
between David and Absalom, and you better choose quickly. But here's the thing. Who are they going to choose? Who would you choose? Well, we might think we would choose David. We would like to think we would choose David. At the same time, uh, we would probably choose the strongest one. Most people are going to go with the one that will preserve their life. Well, if you've just seen David's kingdom torn asunder and him walking out with what few possessions he had, barefoot and weeping, and you see his son come in young, dashing, and with the hearts of the men of Israel with him, including a lot of David's counsel and military might and strength, and him actually uh, uh, possessing David's concubines and living in David's house, Wouldn't you think to yourself, my best chances are siding with Absalom? Of course you would. And Ahithophel is trying to force this decision on the nation of Israel as a whole to make a choice as to which side they're going to go with. And odds are the vast majority of the people are going to end up siding with, uh, with Absalom. And what does that do for Absalom? Absalom's kingdom, and then ultimately Absalom's seizing of the throne from David. It basically is a sure thing at that point, because now if that's the case, if all of Israel sides with Absalom, then he has all the military might. David can't come in and take the kingdom back if he wanted to. And so Ahithophel, who's about to advise Absalom to make a quick strike against David, with a bunch of men from his military um, is wanting to go out there and fight David now. And so he's making, he's forcing the nation to make a choice and make it quickly. That that's at least, it seems to be his intent. And so Ahithophel gives to Absalom some military advice and he makes several key points. I want to take a look at this passage in second uh, Samuel 17, one to three. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man and all the people will be at peace. So you might notice something about Ahithophel's advice. If Absalom is to win, that's the right advice. That's what he should have done. If if Absalom is to Take the kingdom. That was exactly the right counsel. Now, we already know that Ahithophel's wisdom is like listening to the mouth of God, right? So how in the world is the right counsel from the wisest person in the land going to be ignored? Well, we're going to find out in just a minute, but we'll see. That Absalom, that, that Absalom is given advice by Ahithophel, and he makes a couple of key points. First, he wants to overwhelm David with 12,000 men. 
and uh, and and it's going to be in sh- on short notice. Notice that this undercuts David's plan. And Ahithophel, it seems like, doesn't really know what David's plan is, nor does he really care. But his, or he doesn't seem to care anyway. David's plan relies on someone running a long distance uh, over the course of a period of time, kind of a relay of information, all the way back to him out in the wilderness, uh, in the fords of the Jordan, out in the, you know, east of Jerusalem, right there in the flatlands around the Jordan River. Um, if Ahithophel mounts 12,000 men and heads out there quickly that night, there's no time for that information to get to David, not before the military gets there. So, uh, so this would actually undo David's strategy. The other thing is he's going to strike David immediately. So he's going to overwhelm him with a ton of men. He's going to do it immediately. So David's on the run. He has children. He has wives with him. He is barefoot. They probably don't know he's barefoot, but he's barefoot. He's tired. He is weeping. He is sad. And Ahithophel's decision is let's kick him while he's down. That's the best. That's the best idea. So if Ahithophel could strike David before he even got a chance to get himself organized with information and then get an army or some sort of military around him or some sort of protection, then it, the surprise is going to send David's men into a panic. And this is what Ahithophel wants. He's telling Absalom, the best thing that you can do is get everybody into a panic so that they run. Then we can chase only David. We don't want to kill everybody else. Our war is not with them. Our war is with David. We want to strike him. We want to take, make that panic spread across all the people that are with him so that they leave and that they have only David cornered like a, little, like a rat, basically. And we'll kill him. And then all the people that were with him will have no choice but to turn their allegiance to, allegiance to us. And then we will lead them back into the land. And you'll have all of David's people, all of David's wives, and David will be the only one that dies. That's the goal. And so that he wants to limit the damage of the rebellion only to David. So if David's troops, anybody that's with him, goes ahead and flees, then he will isolate David and strike him alone. When you analyze what Ahithophel is telling Absalom, it's a genius strategy. The last thing you want to do is give David, who has proven himself for his entire life to be a wise military strategist, the last thing you want to give him is time. I mean, that is the absolute last thing. You want to catch him by surprise. And Ahithophel knows this, and it's the right counsel. But Absalom is not going to listen. So Hushai comes in, enter Hushai, and he makes several counterpoints. All right, let's look at 5 to 14, 17, 5 to 14. Then Absalom said, Call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given you is not good. Hushai said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men and that they are enraged like a bear 
robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is an expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant men whose heart is like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear for all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for multitude and that you go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground and of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Well, what could possibly do that? For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. That's how. So uh, Hushai is giving him some really bad advice. Uh, Hushai is probably the only one who knows that David marched out in tears barefoot. But he doesn't present David like that. No, no. He presents him as a mama bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Uh he, he, no, David's heart is broken uh, as, he, as he walks out. But Hushai obscures that fact. He actually presents some counterpoints. He says David is a seasoned warrior, and he's, gonna, he's going to anticipate that you're going to attack him right away because that's the obvious counsel. And so he's going to be hidden. You're not going to be able to find him. You think he's going to be with his wife? No, he's going to sacrifice them like, you know, to you like, like Cray, he's going he's gonna to be hidden. There's no way he's going to present himself. And uh, because he, he's seasoned in war, he understands the risks that he would be incurring by hiding there with his family or sleeping with his family. And then Absalom, what he risks is losing the battle. Well, what happens if you can't find David? And then you end up killing the people that are trying to hide David or standing in your way. And then people are going to say, oh, Absalom went out there and killed a whole bunch of women right there trying to look for David. And you end up losing the battle for da of David while he ends up mustering an army and attacking you by surprise. Uh, and you end up losing the battle. Well, that's going to undermine everything that you're trying to do. No, no, no. You, what, you, you don't need to overwhelm him quickly. You need to overwhelm him with numbers. Not 12,000 men. You need hundreds of thousands of people. You need people like the sand on the seashore. From Dan, which is in the far north, to Beersheba in the far south. You need all the people of Israel united under you so that if anything goes wrong, everyone is supporting you. So you need an overwhelming force to make sure that you have no chance of losing. And so... 
after you listen to those two pieces of advice, Absalom listens to Hushai. Because why? It was the Lord's will for him to listen to Hushai instead of Ahithophel. Now, any dummy could see that Ahithophel's advice is the right advice. However, uh, Absalom listens to Hushai probably because the way Hushai presents the advice to Absalom is that he is going to light upon David like the dew on the ground. He's using these brilliant metaphors about the men that are with him and, and what kind of person do you want to be? Do you, do you want to be a man of valor? Do you want to go out here and, and conquer David and, and drag him out like the rat he is? And do you want, he's using these, these big kind of poetic images and Absalom seems persuaded by them. <laughs> and so he seems to be speaking uh, to what we've seen is true of Absalom already. He's a passionate guy. And Hushai seems to present a pretty passionate argument uh, to, to Absalom, and he buys it, hook, line, and sinker. All right. So um, here at the, toward, toward the end of the passage, uh, it seems that Hushai plays to Absalom's fear and vanity, and he undermines Absalom's confidence in Ahithophel, in Ahithophel's advice, and wisdom and above all gave David time to regroup that's what was so urgent and so needed for David was just time to figure everything out and to get his you know forces up under him and and to get his his feet up under him and and all of that kind of stuff so he he buys him a lot of time and so we're going to read what happens here at the end because Hushai is now going to play the role of snitch and go tell uh what happens, uh, what, what's going on inside the council and send this out to David. So we see this in 17, 15 to 23. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar, the priest, thus and so did Ahithophel, Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel. And thus and so have I counseled. Now, therefore, send quickly and tell David, do not stay tonight at the fords in the wilderness of the wilderness. But by all means, pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now, Jonathan and Ahimaaz were waiting at, in, in Rogel. A female servant was to go and tell them. So the female servant of the priest is to go run, tell them they're waiting at in Rogel. I'll show you a map in just a second. Female servant was to go to, and tell them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. So they're waiting on the outskirts of the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom, "Uh uh-oh. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Bahurim who had a well in his courtyard. And they went down into it. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, genius, and nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, they have gone over to the brook of the water. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. After they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. 
They said to David, arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David rose, arose, and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan by daybreak. Not one was left uh, who had not crossed the Jordan. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey, went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. All right. That may seem extreme. Why is, I mean, easy Ahithophel. Just take it easy, bro. You know, like it's, it doesn't seem like it's worth all that, you know, at first. But let's think about it for just a second. So the priests, Jonathan and Ahimez, are outside of the town. And they're waiting on the word of the priests in the city. So they send word with this girl who go to Jonathan and Ahimez. And they're both staying at in Rogel, which means the spring of Rogel. And a maidservant brought information from the city to them. And, but the network that they had worked out breaks down because someone actually sees them outside the city in, in Rogel and runs to Absalom and says, probably a very similar way as people would go to David and tell him things, hoping that, hoping that they would you know, find favor in his sight. And he tells him where these two guys, these two priests are hiding and they run off. They get, they duck inside a well. And this sounds eerily similar to the spies that run into the land. You know, they hide and, and, uh, and a, oh, the woman uh, uh, hides them in her house under the thatching of the roof. And, uh, but this time they hide in a well and she throws some grain on there to make it look like the, the cover hadn't come off very recently, which is just absolutely genius. So if you're hiding anybody in a well at any point, just remember, uh, throw some dirt on top. Uh, <laughs> so, so, um, she hid them well. Nice, Blake. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> very good. Um, so, so anyway, uh, she hides them in this well and they wait and she, she lies. She tells them, oh, they, they crossed over. She seems to probably be with David at this point, maybe. Um, and they, so they come back, they narrowly escape and then they go tell David. Now, Ahithophel obviously lost face with the king to be, it seemed, uh, with Absalom and realized that he was not going to be the leading advisor. Now, why does he go and hang himself? Now, it, it may be a little bit of speculation, but it's not a far leap to think about it for just a second and realize if, he, if his counsel is really wise, maybe he understands that about himself, and he obviously knows David very well, and he knows that Absalom's listening to Hushai's counsel is not going to end well for Absalom, probably. Now, what happens to Ahithophel if and when Absalom dies by the hand of David and David comes back into Jerusalem, what is Ahithophel's fate? Well, who knows? David might kill him. David might forgive him. David might put him in prison for the rest of his life. But Ahithophel doesn't want to stick around to find out. And so he picks up, he runs off, he puts his affairs in order, and he commits suicide because he would rather take his own life than leave himself in the hands of David, I assume. And so at this point, what, what's happened? Well, what I find fascinating about this story, oh, let me, before I do that, let me show you the map here real quick so you can kind of see. If you look real close, 
Jerusalem, you have Jerusalem, Bahurim, Mount of Olives, Enrogel. Enrogel is just south of Jerusalem. I mean, a stone's throw. The Mount of Olives, you can see Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. And I mean, it's, you feel like you could throw a stone there and hit it. Um, and so Enrogel is about equidistant to the south as the Mount of Olives. So you, it's very, very close to Jerusalem. Um, they're waiting there. David is out here in the fords of the Jordan, and David's going to end up in the next passage we're going to cover next week in Mahanaim, out east of, um, of, the, fort of the Jordan. Um, the thing that I find the most fascinating about this story and the most comforting And we talked about this a little bit last week, but David is in dire straits and he is being punished by the Lord. The kingdom is being torn uh, from him. And yet at the same time, God still listens to his prayer and still responds to his prayer. Because even if David is a scoundrel, He's still God's scoundrel. And I think, you know, I'm abundantly comforted by that because I think every Christian can probably relate is that we're all scoundrels. And yet, I, I, I know over the course of my life, I've convinced myself a, a million different things about the Lord, none of which have proven to be true <laughs> um, in moments of, of trial and tribulation that everything from the Lord doesn't want to hear from me to uh, you know, I've committed a, a sin, another sin, same sin maybe that I've committed before. Surely this time the Lord's fed up with me. And yet that has proven itself to be completely untrue throughout all of scripture Time and time again, what is affirmed to us over and over is that the Lord still cares for his children, even when they're being disciplined. And in fact, their discipline from him is evidence of his care for them. And how do we know that? Well, we know that in David's case, because as David is leaving, all he can muster through tears, through his barefooted tears, is Lord somehow turn the counsel of Ahithophel. David, knowing the sovereignty of God and knowing that all men's decisions are in his hand, leaves it to the Lord to do what is good and pleasing in his sight. And he does. He turns Absalom's heart so that he doesn't listen to Ahithophel's counsel. And then Ahithophel is driven crazy to suicide. And he listens to Ahushai, who's on David's side. That to me is incredibly comforting to watch how, how the Lord takes care of his children and really deeply cares for his children. Questions? Comments? You can open your microphone. You can type them in. I have a little bit of time, so. I will sit here for 13 minutes until, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Well, okay. You explain it so clearly, nobody needs any more clarification. <laughs>
this time. No, <laughs> either that or uh, either or it's too much information or it's so muddy you don't even know where to start. Could also be the case. All right. Well, uh, this Sunday is Psalm 18, all 50 verses. So <laughs> uh, this will be the, the most verses uh, that I've preached for a while here. So, um, so anyway, read up, be prepared. Uh, it's, a, it's an incredibly rewarding passage, I think, to read, um, especially considering what we went through tonight. Because in Psalm 18, David is celebrating the many victories that the Lord has given to him over all his foes, not least of which is Saul. Um, and Psalm 18 is actually duplicated in 2 Samuel 22. So it's, it's almost word for word, not quite, but it's, it's almost word for word in 2 Samuel 22. So you can read both of them. You can see um, that 2 Samuel 22 is just around the bend. You can read the context that it occurs in in 2 Samuel 22, which um, is, is also interesting. So um, read that. Be prepared. Uh, should be good. Hope to see y'all Sunday. Uh, if, if not, then hope y'all see me on Sunday. Do what? Go ahead. Would you like to ask a question about Mr. Window of Opportunity? No, go ahead. So, uh, you know, I, I think we read it earlier, right, that – uh, and you said that David had prayed that that uh, the Lord would confuse a fifth, the uh, the council of a fifth. The, uh, I can't say sure. the name really well. Sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's, that's correct. Yeah. So, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, like David was I mean, he didn't pray just God deliver me. He had a specific sort of mechanism in mind. Yeah. And. And I think that's interesting. I was, I was reading something last night where it kind of was encouraging us to uh, maybe not be open to whatever God's plan is rather than trying to get God to conform to our plan. Uh-huh. Right. And here's a little bit like David had a plan. And he was hoping God would conform to it as opposed to just God, you know, whatever. Yeah. I don't know. I just uh, just because of what I read last night, I was thinking about that. Yeah, that's an interesting observation. Um, I, I I could say I don't think either is wrong, and I think we have it. We have an exam. We have examples in Scripture of both, where a person prays for a specific thing to take place, like David here, and then we also have general prayers, where even in the Psalms, as we've read, David prays more generally um, right. for the Lord to work it out, right, in, in in accordance with His will. But what I would say is uh, about that is. Uh, let's think, let's also think about how we understand prayer. Um, what, what is prayer exactly? I think the, the new Testament kind of clues us in that prayer is an, is a, the heart level response of, a, a someone who loves and fears the Lord. Um, it's a heart level response uh, to him. And, and, and who is the one that turns the heart controls the heart, motivates the heart toward prayer. We find that answer really in the scriptures as well, that it's the Holy Spirit who's the one that reminds us to pray, convicts us to pray, leads us to pray, motivates our prayers, and really supplies the words of our prayers when we don't know what to pray for as we ought. 
And so what I would say, just as I guess uh, valid here, would be to look at David's prayer as not only, um, you know, David saying, I have a plan and I want you to do exactly this, Lord, but that that also is motivated by the Spirit's uh, moving of David, um, that he goes to the Lord in the, in the midst of conviction over his sin and a desire that the Lord would not rip the kingdom out from under him. He is motivated to pray in this way. And the Lord responds to exactly that. Um, one of the things that was hardest for me to wrap my mind around that's still really challenging for me to think about in prayer is that God is motivated by prayer. Not as though he needs it in order to do something or that you're persuading him to do something, but that he motivates his people to pray and that prayer is the fuel of his action. And so uh, I think just as likely we could see the spirit motivating, if we're looking on like a spiritual level here, the spirit motivating David's heart to utter these exact words, because that is what was in the plan of the Lord to do. And notice that when he, when he talks about the Lord doing this, he says, for the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. No mention is given at all that the Lord heard David's prayer and responded, but that it was the Lord's ordinance that he was going to do this. So we could also probably surmise that it might have been the Lord's ordinance for David to pray exactly that, which became the fuel for his action. That's a mind bender, I know, because it works me over every time I think about it. But it seems like that's what the scripture points us to in prayer. Does that make any sense whatsoever? Yeah, no, that, that oops, sorry. Yeah, that, no, that was helpful. That was, uh, it's just, it is, it's a, it's a deep thing to think about and kind of wrap our minds around. So, yeah, I appreciate the, the insight. I, I will tell you, on a personal level, prayer is one of the, I think most Christians, if you were to just ask in a room, what's your, what's the hardest struggle of your spiritual walk? Nine out of 10 of them are going to say prayer. And I think, uh, and I know that's been historically true in, in just anecdotally. And it's certainly true in my life. And it is difficult for us to wrap our minds around how, how and why that is important and how the Lord uses it. And we get all of this stuff in the New Testament of the Holy Spirit interceding for us because we don't know what to pray for as we ought. And he has, so it's like he intercepts the prayer that we pray anyway, changes it to what the will of the Lord is, and then prays that for us. And then the Lord (laughs) acts on that. So you go, so then what is the point exactly? And, um, And, but then... If you're a Christian, you really can't stop because the Holy Spirit in you is going to drive you toward it. Um, it in, in some ways, it's sort of like evangelism, too. We know that the Lord calls his own. He says, my sheep hear my voice. They respond to callings of the gospel. And so what makes us evangelize? Well, the Holy Spirit drives us to evangelism. He promises to share the gospel. The Holy Spirit that's within us does that. And that's what the Lord uses to call people to himself. Why does he do it that way? I don't know, but he does. 
And it just, some of those things are, are really hard to, you know, to process, but I mean, a Christian who has the indwelling Holy Spirit is going to be driven towards it um, because the Spirit is driving it. Which is a great encouragement too. So, or perhaps maybe a conviction. I don't know. (laughs) Anyway, well, thanks for questions. Thanks for being here, sticking with me week in and week out on this. I am really hopeful that very soon we will be going back to in person on Wednesday. I really want that to happen, but um, it would be so much better. I know. We'll still have to keep some sort of online version. And that's somewhat of what's holding it back a little bit is the keynote presentation and the online version and the asking of questions with the mixed audience of online and in person, in addition to the childcare, in addition to all the other stuff that's sort of a logistical nightmare at this moment, just really difficult to work out. And um, not only that, but we still have a lot of restrictions that uh, I think are wise to abide by at this moment. Um, So, you know, Anyway, all that being said, that's kind of what the holdup is for right now. So uh, just bear with us. Thanks for staying with me week in and week out. And, um, and we'll hopefully end this all soon. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, we are grateful for at least this, being able to come together, um, read, the, read the, the narrative of Scripture, what you have preserved for us in black and white for thousands of years you have preserved this that we can read it what a privilege that is and how often we overlook that completely and neglect it and we ask for forgiveness for that Um, we have the bible's pages in abundance and in a thousand translations and um, all of which could be read and edify us and correct us and train us in righteousness. And all of it speaks our language, a language we understand. And we have your Holy Spirit to guide us in our reading. We have a body around us to help us understand it rightly. We have pastors who teach us. We have so many resources that we can access, books like crazy that we can read. And we neglect it completely. And we ask for your forgiveness because these are the words of life and we are grateful for them. And we pray that as we read and as we study, that we would understand, but not for an academic purpose, but so that our hearts may be turned and kindled toward you, that we may fall in love with the God who gave us life and breath, who saved us with the blood of his son and who sends his spirit to us to convict us, to train us, to keep us, to pull us ever closer towards Christ as we grow. We are grateful for that. We recognize you do that through your word, and we are thankful for that as well. In Jesus' name, amen.